Inside the Admissions Office, your one-stop shop for expert advice on the smart way to get in. My name is Ellen, and each episode, I'll bring you an interview with a former admissions officer, a graduate of top college or admissions expert. These interviews will take you inside the admissions office and will be full of behind-the-scenes knowledge, first-hand experiences, and application tips that will help you get into your dream school. If you'd like to chat with one of these experts, you can sign up for a free consultation at the link in the description of this episode. Today, we'll hear from Brad Bailey, the founder of Bailey Test Prep, about strategies students can utilize to increase their SAT and ACT scores and build their testing confidence. We'll also discuss how test prep planning has changed in a world of test optional policies. Hi, Brad. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Ellen? I'm good. Just to start off with, do you want to tell me about yourself, about your background, how you got into test prep? When I was in high school, I was a huge nerd. So I actually took tests for fun when I, I took I think my favorite test was the LSAT just because I liked kind of the logic and and the puzzles that they had but I just always loved testing kind of inherently I was also part of this club we called it Moafa Theta it was a math competition club and we were the super cool kids that would wake up really early on Saturday mornings and travel across the state of Florida and take math tests for fun so students from all over the state were coming to take tests at our high school and at the time I was president of the club and I was really interested in in test writing. So I got an offer from the organization that was running this competition. Hey, would you like to be, to my knowledge, the first student to write a test for this competition? And I thought, hey, this sounds pretty cool. So they sent me a test writer's packet and it had, hey, here's some previous tests that we want you to kind of model off of. Obviously don't copy these questions exactly. Here's kind of your curriculum. So we want generally these topics to be tested in this level of difficulty. And then they gave me a curve. So we want X percent of students to score between this score and this score and Y percent between this score and this score. I remember looking at this test writer's packet and I said, okay, you know, no problem. I can, I can make the test. I can format the test. Great. But this curve, how do I know what students are going to score in a test that I hadn't even written yet? So I actually picked up the phone and I got in line with the college board, ETS and other companies that do actual test writing. And I, I asked them, I said, here's the predicament I'm in. Can you give me some, some tips to, to write a multiple choice test to fit a curve? I remember learning so much about the test writing process. I thought, gosh, what I'm doing to write these these questions and specifically to write the wrong answers is so formulaic that I really hope the students who are taking this test don't understand what's going into this. Otherwise, it would be so easy for them to reverse engineer it and get the answer right. And that's kind of where that mental light bulb went off. And I said, gosh, I guess, I bet the SAT and ACT test writers think the exact same thing. I bet they're writing these tests almost algorithmically. And hey, if the students knew what was going on in the writing process, it would kind of be easy and break their curve. And of course, being a high school student at the time, that was the most relevant test. So I started teaching my friends, hey, think about this when you take your SAT and ACT. Think about this when you look at the questions, start teaching them from the test writing standpoint. And they were doing exceptionally well. I actually had a teacher in my high school that said, I have to stop teaching these strategies because the students were using them on her multiple choice AP calculus tests. And she said, Brad, you're undermining my career as a professor, as a teacher, because students are just getting answers right and they're not actually learning the material. So I thought that was kind of amusing, but I ended up teaching students. I did my undergraduate at Harvard and taught students up there as so many people do. Well, my students are actually doing exceptionally well up there as well, so much so that I got calls from a company called Ivy Insiders, from Kaplan, Prince Review, and they said, hey, would you like to be a, a full-time tutor with us in the summers and when you graduate? And I was super flattered, but I said, you know what? It, I think 
I'm going to decide and do this for myself. So I, it was then, it was in 2010, I started my company now, which is called Bailey Test Prep. And since I've been helping students from all over the country, all over the world, even as their scores on the SATs and ACTs. And then we also do budget school exams as well. We'll be discussing the SAT and ACT specifically, as well as testing strategies specifically. But first, I just want to get into test prep planning because that's such a big part of the process. So to start off with, for you, what is the ideal timeline for when students should start preparing for the SAT or the ACT, you know, freshman, sophomore, junior? And then, you know, how much time should they spend studying three months, six months, an entire year? So ideally, a student would start prepping for this after they've had Algebra 2, since that covers much of the math for most students. That's going to be after their sophomore year, which would mean the summer after sophomore year before junior year is probably the ideal time to get started with prep. And then it really depends on a student's schedule in terms of, you know, once classes start, once sports starts, once extracurriculars start, I th- and depends on what your summer plans are. I think summer is a great time to get a bulk of the studying done, and then you can fine tune throughout your junior year. Um, you have the summer after your junior year to, at that point, you'll know your final your, your final GPA, you'll know kind of where ballpark your score range is, you might have done some college visits, you might have even started some applications. So at that point, if you want to prep a little bit more and, and get that score up just a little bit higher than the fall of your senior year to give you a better chance of getting into the colleges of your choice, I'd recommend that as well. But typically, it is it is kind of a year-long, maybe even over a year-long process of studying, of taking the test, of super scoring, because both the SAT and ACT will super score the exams, which means they will take your highest score across multiple different test takes. And for that reason, it really is to your advantage to take the test multiple times. So generally the timeline that I have students do is prep over the summer before your junior year. And then in the fall of your junior year, you will take, it's usually in October, you'll take the PSAT which counts as the National Merit Qualifying Test. And so that's kind of the PSAT that counts more or less. And then you can go right into taking a real SAT and a real ACT in the fall, figure out which one you want to specialize in, take it once or twice more in the spring. And then, like I said, kind of reassess over the summer before your senior year. And how do you recommend students decide between the SAT and the ACT? So both tests serve functionally the same goal. They get you into college of your choice. So they, they, they help you get into the college of your choice, I would say. For the most part, you only have to submit one or the other. Um, and some colleges are, are going test optional as well. But because both tests are fundamentally different in their approach, the ACT is generally more of an achievement test, whereas an SAT is more of an aptitude test. I recommend students take both especially take them both graded on a national curve. And the reason why is because since both these tests are curved, that means that just taking a practice test and say, oh, I think the ACT is is an easier test than the SAT may not be a great barometer of which test is the better test for you. Because if everyone thinks the ACT is easier, then that means that you have to do better compared to everyone else that you're taking the test against. And so I recommend students prep for both, generally in the fall of their junior year, take both. And at that point, they can kind of reassess and say, which one do I want to specialize in? There's one exception to that. And if if you're in the boat where you generally are are a slower than average reader, and you don't have any circumstances that would, would qualify you for accommodations in terms of extra time, then probably the SAT might be a better bet, because the ACT is actually designed so that most students can't finish in time. The general mentality of the ACT is that we're going to give you questions that probably across the board are are a little easier and more straightforward than an SAT, 
But our mentality is that the students who know this the best will generally do it in the least amount of time. And so they constrict you on time. For example, if you just look at compare the two reading sections, which are pretty comparable, the SAT will give you five reading sections that roughly around 100 lines of text. And there's maybe 10 to 11 questions after each one. And you have 65 minutes to do that whole section. So it's about 13 minutes of reading passage. Whereas the ACT gives you four of the reading passage about the same length, same number of questions, and only 35 minutes to do that. So it's less than nine minutes a passage. So there is a big difference in terms of time. Therefore, if, if you're someone where time is going to really play a role, then maybe you lean more towards the SAT. But we also teach a bunch of timing strategies in the ACT to make you more efficient at that test. And there are a lot of test prep courses and tutors, obviously. What criteria do you recommend students use to determine, you know, if a tutor or if test prep course is credible, if they are worth the investment, are there any red flags students should look out for, et cetera? Yeah, it's a question I get a lot. I'm generally obviously biased towards my own test prep, but parents will say, hey, the, the school is offering this, this course, the school, should we sign up for that in addition to yours or before we take yours or after? And generally speaking, although there, I don't want to be naive and think that there aren't some courses that could teach the wrong thing and, and do more harm than good. I like to believe that most people are, are trying trying to help students improve and the more exposure, the better. So I generally say, hey, yeah, go ahead and take that class. And whether you take it before or after mine, it, it probably doesn't really matter because what I'll be teaching you in my courses is really based on strategy. It's strategy that's unique. It's stuff that I came up with. It's stuff that you likely can't find anywhere else. But there are two things that go into test preparation. It's strategy, but strategy alone doesn't you know, can't bring you to the full potential. It's also content. So you need to review all the content rules. You need to review the math rules, review the grammar rules, get practice reading, which is going to increase your comprehension, increase your speed. And so any exposure you can get to that is better, particularly if, if you can work with someone that you have a pretty good vibe with and relationship with, and they're helping you. I think that the biggest hallmark of a tutor is to make it as crazy as it sounds to make studying for the SAT and ACT almost fun and enjoyable because if it's something that you want to do and it's something that you're learning from and you you see that you're you're growing that's going to really improve your overall psychology versus something that you're absolutely dreading and this is the worst and I, I can't it pains me to pay attention to this then that might be more a, a waste of time and of course not all students have the ability maybe because they're busy they don't have the financial resources to take a test prep class or work with a tutor are there some free resources that you really recommend students utilize there are tons of free resources. Really with, with online resources, it's seemingly endless and it can almost be paralyzing how many there are. If you are taking the SAT, the Khan Academy organization has partnered with the College Board to offer an SAT prep course. It's completely free. It's on their site. And I think that, you know, some of their... some of their videos are great, some maybe not so great, but it does an exceptional job of categorizing exactly what you need to know. So if you're sitting here and say, hey, I know the SAT, you know, tests algebra, geometry, algebra one, algebra two, geometry, trig, some basic pre-calc, maybe some statistics. You're thinking, holy mackerel, that's like four years of high school. How do I go back and refresh all of that? Well, this is what the Khan Academy does a really good job at because they're in partnership with the SAT. You'll know kind of exactly what is tested and what's not tested. So their math curriculum is exceptional. Top of that, you can YouTube, bunch of YouTube videos out there. You can probably do a pretty good job of within a couple minutes telling if it's 
a good source or not a good source. You know, there are lots of worksheets online to, to brush up on grammar rules, on punctuation rules, or, or there are plenty of practice tests available online. And even just going through and taking practice tests on your own time, especially when they're timed, so you know how to not only answer the questions, but also manage your time to, to fit the allotted time. And going over an answers and explanations for those, I think you can learn a lot, even just free self-study. So now we're going to go ahead and talk about the SAT. So first, you just want to briefly talk about how the SAT has changed over the years. Most notably, we know that it has changed like the, the scores, like the number that you receive your score out of. When I took it, I think it was out of 2,200. Now it's out of 1,600. I think this can be like especially important if students are receiving advice from teachers, parents, siblings. When they took the SAT, it was a little bit different. So you just want to cover that briefly. Yeah, definitely. So the SAT was that was the original one. It started back as the the College Board exam. I believe it was in 1900. So this is back when you know it used to be these colleges and universities they pretty much pulled from a single school or one or two schools. So you know Harvard, for example, they had their two or three feeder schools they pulled from right around the Boston area. And so the college admissions officers they knew every single student, they knew all the teachers, they knew the curriculum. It was easy. Well, now that people are able to travel to different schools and people are applying from all over the country, it becomes a lot harder to differentiate, like we were talking about before, who's the better applicant for a limited number of spots. And so they came up with this, this college board exam, which is where we get the name college board from. And it was basically an aptitude test to test your ability and we could cross compare different students. Well, I believe it was in 1934 is when Harvard was the first school to mandate to require all applicants to take what had now become the SAT, which was an evolution of that college board exam. And since then, it's it's continually been evolving, as you alluded to. The last few major changes were in 2005. That's when it went to a score. They had three sections. So it was a total score out of 2,400. Changed back in 2016 to a score out of 1,600, which is what it is now. And they're gearing up to change it one more time. With each change has, you know, the SAT has pretty much made pretty drastic changes on their tests, not just the scoring, but the types of questions, the, the format of the exam, the length of the exam. And so the tests that we're taking now, just to kind of break that down for you, the, it's four sections. And the first section is a reading section. You get five decently long passages. As we said, it's 65 minutes. You have 52 questions. The next is a writing section. So they give you some passages that are not well-written, there are grammatical errors, punctuation errors, some, some style errors, and you have 35 minutes to answer 45 questions, kind of correcting those errors. Then you get two math sections. The first math section, you are not allowed to use a calculator. It's the shorter of the two. You have 15 multiple choice questions, and then five grid-in questions where you, you actually have to fill in the answer. It's not multiple choice. And then the last section is the longer of the two math sections, and this you are allowed to use a calculator on, and that's 55 minutes for 30 multiple choice questions and eight grid in questions. So that's the test we have now. It, of course, it's it's changing in March of next year for international students. And then it'll change the PSAT in October of 2023 will be the new digital version. And then in 2024, it'll change for all test takers. And as far as the SAT, what mistakes do you often see students making that are specific to the SAT? The SAT, probably more so than the ACT is designed, because it's designed to be an aptitude test, kind of the, the hallmarks of that are, are they're trying to trick you every step of the way. So um, this is what we cover in our course. There are a lot of things that if you know how the test writers are writing these questions, specifically on math writing wrong answer choices, because of course on a math 
question, the test rate has no control over the right answer. It just is the right answer based on the question. How does the test rate write wrong answer choices to try and trick you into choosing those wrong answer choices? Or maybe on a more subjective section, like the reading section or the writing section, where the test writer actually does have control over the language of the right answer, because you can think on a reading test, there are multiple possible right answers on like math, and the test writer has to write which one is is he or she's going to deem to be correct. And then also write three wrong answers. Every single decision that the test writer is making generally is there to improve the validity of the SAT and, and specifically the, the external validity, which is trying to get at, it, at how predictive is this test? How, how valid are the results in terms of, is it if we're trying to rank students by their ability in math, writing, and reading, then do your SAT scores actually match your, your ranking in those in those subjects. And so the test writer, first and foremost, if you know how to do the problem the way it's meant to be done and you don't make a mistake, the test writer wants to get it right. If for any reason you made a mistake or you were unsure, you're taking too long, or you don't you don't go to the from point A to point B from the question to the right answer efficiently, quickly, and error-free, the test writer wants you to get that wrong. And so when obviously when people come to me for test prep, we don't need to work on the questions that you already know how to do the way they're meant to be done. We're specifically looking at the questions that you keep missing. And, and the common theme there is the test writer is trying to trick you. So just a couple real quick examples of that. On the SAT questions that are the evidence-based reading, which means they'll give you a question, they'll follow it up with, where did you find the evidence this particular question? The test writer is choosing starting and ending words for wrong answers specifically to try and prime you into thinking a certain answer without actually going back. So watch out for that. On the math section, it's not uncommon if they give you a problem and, and it's the units are measured in seconds, they'll ask you for an answer in minutes or, or stuff like that, just to give one extra step to try and trick you along the way. And now same questions about the ACT. How has it evolved over the years? What sections does it include? Yeah, so the ACT was developed in 1959. Generally, as a response to the SAT, ACT said, hey, maybe if the SAT is an aptitude test, generally testing your ability, or maybe a little more crudely put, if the SAT is testing how smart you are as an aptitude test, then the ACT as an achievement test is testing how knowledgeable you are, or how much you know. And so it was, it was developed in response to the SAT because, hey, maybe, maybe we are going to take a different approach. Instead of trying to rank you in terms of your ability, we'll rank you in terms of how prepared you are for college and, and how knowledgeable you are. And those the differentiations between the SAT and ACT today have really merged. There, there's not a whole lot of difference. I still see the difference between the two, certain styles of questions, just from a, from a test writing standpoint. But to the average person, you might not be able to distinguish clearly the differences just by looking at them. The ACT has relatively remained constant since then. It did go through a revitalization in 1989, but since then it's it's basically stayed roughly the same test. They've added an essay, they've removed an essay, but the general trend is the ACT has gotten harder. I look back even from doing this, I've been doing this for 12 years, and I look back at the first couple strategies that I was able to teach in these first few classes 12 years ago, and it was like, these strategies were just so simple. And I, I would, there's one, I would even tell students on the questions that were like, they're on the English section. They say answer choice D or answer choice J says delete or omit the underlying portion. Um, it turns out just following the trends that used to be right 90% of the time. So students that, uh, because the AC was trying to teach you, hey, less is more. If you don't absolutely need it for the passage, take it out. And so I would sit in these classes and I would say, hey, if you are struggling for time at all on this, tell you what, whenever you see, delete the underlying passion, delete the underlying portion, 
Just circle that blindly and move on. Guess what? There will be probably around eight or nine of them on the test and you'll miss one and you'll be you'll be able to save all that time to, to answer the rest of the, the test. And unfortunately, the ACT has kind of gotten wise to that and that loophole has since been closed. So just be clear, that's not a strategy that we're advocating for anymore. That being said, there are some other loopholes that still exist, but I have noticed uh, the ACT has gotten progressively harder and probably rightfully so because colleges have gotten progressively more competitive and the whole process is just so competitive now. And what mistakes do you most often see students make on the ACT? ACT, the the mistakes are basically comes down to timing, the most common one, because, you know, the, the ACT breakdown is the, you first start with an English section, you have 45 minutes to do 75 questions. Next is a math section. You have 60 minutes for 60 questions. And then third section is reading. You have 35 minutes for 40 questions. And then science, also you have 35 minutes for 40 questions. Those two tend to be the two sections, those final two, that students struggle with the most uh, with on time. And it's a combination of two things, I think. One, that they just are hard sections to finish in time, given the, given the time that you get. But second, they're the last two sections that you take. And so you've already been testing for close to two hours at this point, and you're just exhausted. And it's like, man, this is kind of a, an endurance element as well as, as a testing element. So to keep your brain fresh, keep your brain active, to be able to go through at the pace that you need to go through to complete that section is difficult. Probably specifically what I see is students spend a lot of their time getting answers wrong. And it's totally counterintuitive of what you want to do. We want to use our time to get many answers right. But what I'll see, maybe, you know, if we take five questions, just a random five questions, and let's say a student spends 30 seconds answering question one, and they spend 40 seconds answering question two, and 35 seconds answering question three, question four, they spend two minutes on, and question five, they spend 45 seconds. Well, if I'm just looking at that data, I would say there's a very high likelihood that they probably got question four wrong, the question they spent so much time on. Why? Because obviously they didn't know it. They had to maybe go back to the passage. They had to search for it. They're debating between answer choices. And so ironically, the one that you have the highest likelihood of getting wrong is the one you spent overwhelming the most time on. And so if you do end up getting that wrong, you just wasted all that time and you have nothing to show for it. So we really talk about timing strategies. We talk about how to be decisive through questions. And if you know exactly what to look out for, and sometimes I, I work with students a lot and they, this is a really common thing that I get is they'll come to me, particularly students who are maybe more, more mathematically brained. And they say, Hey, I, I'm more of a math person. I really don't like the reading section because unlike math, where there just is one right answer and, and there are three clear wrong answers, I usually, in the reading section, I can narrow down to two and they both seem right to me and I don't know which one is more right. And, and what I'll say to them is actually, you're going to be shocked to hear this, but the reading section is just as objective as the math section. Just like the math section, on the reading section, there's one and only one clear right answer and three clear wrong answers. What you're doing, if you're thinking to a right, you're missing maybe one little word or one little strategy the test writer is doing to make it sound right when actually it's 100% wrong. And so the more you learn that, actually the faster you become anyway. And so it's, it's kind of a, a cycle where if we help you become a more strategic and better test taker, it actually helps with time as well, but then we can also work on some, some timing strategies. So now we're going to go ahead and discuss more specific testing strategies. So my first question is just, 
you know, how do these testing strategies, first of all, differ between the SAT and the ACT, but also are there differences when you compare them to the other standardized tests? So students are taking their AP exams, maybe state exams, multiple choice exams in class. Are there certain strategies that they might be using for one exam that they shouldn't be using for the other, et cetera? So there, there totally are different strategies for different tests. I don't want to oversimplify this, but generally speaking, a lot of the strategies we teach are applicable to multiple choice tests in general, because when you take a multiple choice test, there are just certain concessions a test writer is making. For example, unlike any other test, if you take a multiple choice test, you have the opportunity to get instant confirmation if your answer is wrong, if you don't see it there. That doesn't exist in other tests. The test writer also has to kind of not only put the right answer, but predict on predict what mistakes you're going to make and include those as wrong answers. The test writer has to be really careful in generating the language for a right answer that can be universally agreed upon as correct, rather than you filling in, maybe filling in what you think or summarizing a main point if it were any other type of test. So a lot of the strategies that I teach are generally based on multiple choice tests. And for that reason, I'm able to teach strategy courses to across many different styles of tests, AP tests, AP tests might be a little more content-based, to ACT, grad school exams. I've even, it, I laugh every time, but I've had people call me and say, hey, you know, I'm gearing up to take the bar exam. Can you, to, to be a lawyer, can you help me with that? Or, hey, I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm taking my medical boards. Can you help me? I'm a general contractor. Take my general contractor's exam. Can you help me with strategies? <laughs> and I, I laugh because for those, for those professional tests, it's, it's like, you probably should know the law. You probably should know how to be a doctor, build a house. I don't, I don't just want to help you hack this, this exam to get licensed. But at the same time, and, and I don't claim to know anything about, you know, medicine or, or law or general contracting above and beyond what any lay person would know. So they're clearly coming to me way more knowledgeable about the content, but I have helped with some, some general multiple choice strategies that you can use on across many different types of multiple choice tests. That being said, like I said, being there, there of course differences based on the tests themselves. And so we do have you know, classes that are just for SAT, we have classes for ACT, but because there actually is a big overlap now between the SAT and ACT, the SAT and their most recent revitalization actually became way more similar to the ACT than it was before. There is definitely a lot of overlap in the strategies between these two tests. And while there are certainly differences, the ACT has a science section, the SAT doesn't have, the SAT has certain question types, the ACT doesn't have, I'd say probably two thirds of, of the strategies between both are in common. And that's why we're able to teach, in addition to teaching test-specific classes, we teach combination classes. So I, I'll hold combination classes where we teach both SAT and ACT strategy in the same class, and we can cover both tests efficiently because of the overlap there. And obviously we could, we'd be here all day if I had you list out every testing strategy and probably a podcast isn't like the most efficient. You probably need like a whiteboard and stuff. I don't know how to figure that out over Zoom, but do you want to talk about You've already listed a couple of testing strategies. Do you want to list maybe just a few more of the very most important SAT and ACT strategies that students should have down? Yeah. I mean, like you said, we, we have so many. We teach, you know, multiple session courses over many hours for this. And I would say that it's really hard to pinpoint the most important one. But what one thing that I, I am kind of really proud of in our strategies is we teach guessing strategies for every single section. And so... The goal is by the time a student leaves our course, or if I've been working with a student privately, by the time they, they go into the actual exam, they have a plan on every question. So it's not like, let's, let's hope that you get these certain questions that you know how to do. And if you don't get these questions and like, 
I don't know, it's kind of tough luck. We give you guessing strategies on every single section of the test to really improve your chance of getting it right. Even if you don't know how to do the problem, or even if it's something that you're not familiar with, or maybe you are running out of time and you have to quickly guess some answers. So I'm really proud of those strategies because I think it does two things. It instantly improves your score because, you know, ideally you're, you're not having to guess on anything, but that's not the reality. So these are hard tests and there's no penalty for guessing on either test. Therefore you should always guess, never leave any question blank. That might, that might be the obvious, most important strategy. Don't leave anything blank, but, but I don't really call that a true strategy, but guessing strategies really help because not only do they help improve your score when you're guessing, but they also give you confidence to say, I have a plan. I have a tool that I can use in any situation, even in that worst case scenario when I, I don't know. And of course, the guessing strategies aren't necessarily 100% effective. There are plenty of instances when the guessing strategies will fail, but on average, the guessing strategies will generally work about 40 to 50% of, your time, of the time. So there's inherent good news and bad news there. The good news is that if you're on an ACT, say you're on an ACT math section, it's out of five answer choices, you have a 20% chance of guessing at random. We've improved that. We've doubled your chance of guessing. On an SAT out of, out of four answer choices, we've almost doubled your chance of guessing, which is which is great. And you will see immediately result, immediate results there. But the bad side of that is that half the time, if not more than half the time, they don't work. So we stress other strategies that are maybe you go to first. And of course, you know, if you know how to do the problem the way it's meant to be done, that's the best case scenario. But I do think the, the guessing strategies of bringing up that floor. So your worst case scenario isn't as bad as what it would have been before and improving your confidence there is, is really important. And when it comes to retaking these exams, do you have specific strategies or specific advice for students? You know, they know they need to improve their score, maybe overall, maybe on specific sections. How do you go? How do you recommend that they go about that preparation of improving their score? Because I think it can seem really, you know, daunting. I'm like, oh God, like I got a 32. I need to somehow get a 35. How can we break that down so it's not as scary for students? Yeah, of course. And so this would probably depend on the on the student and the situation you're in. Because you know, if you if you come to me and you say, say you have a, a 30, well, that that could mean two things. It could mean that you got a 24 on two sections and a perfect score of 36 on two sections. It could also mean you got 30s across the board on all four sections. And those two those two 30s are not equal. Those are two completely different scenarios. If you, so to speak to that, if you have one or two sections that are pretty low, a couple that are really high, remember that the vast majority of colleges will allow you to super score. So maybe you, you obviously focus on the ones where you can pick up the most points most quickly. And that's not to say don't don't focus on on some sections. The ACT will actually allow you to only take certain sections of the test. And this is something that I don't recommend students do unless you do have a perfect score on the other sections. Because let's say, you know, say you have a 35, which is one point away from perfect score. It's phenomenal. But kind of what we talked about earlier, if you got the 35 once, then you might be one or one or two questions away from a 36. And even if you didn't improve at all in terms of studying you never know like you've, you've proven that you can get it once and maybe this time you don't you don't actually even focus on studying but you just get lucky guessing on on one or two questions and that can improve your score so i encourage students again to kind of take the test there's no harm in taking the test and if you if you go down it, it you just won't send the scores it, it doesn't matter I mean, you can you can pick the scores that you want to send and then in terms of like if you're across the board, kind of 30s all across the board or, or whatever situation you're in, it's really just 
practicing your weaknesses. So again, it's it varies on the student. Is is it because of timing? Is it because you need to brush up on content? Maybe you've plateaued with with content. Maybe you haven't studied strategy yet, and and adding strategy to that can can bring you over the hump. So yeah, it, it really depends, but but definitely practice makes perfect. And the more you can take it, even if it's just taking practice tests on your own at home, it can really help. And for many students, testing anxiety is a huge issue. How do you work with students to improve their confidence, to improve their testing anxiety? Yeah, so it's it's a huge issue um, for a lot of students. And it creates this vicious cycle of students will say, hey, I'm, I'm not good at tests. I'm, I'm bad at, at standardized tests. And they get nervous, they get anxious, and they'll walk in. And because they're nervous and anxious, they don't perform at their true ability, and they get a bad score they're unhappy with. And that just reinforces the cycle of, see, I got a bad score. I'm a bad test taker. They walk in again. And so it's really important that we break this cycle. And so we'll talk a lot about some psychological tools you can use to increase your confidence. Probably, and that's, I think the guessing strategies help that too, because now you know that you, you have a tool for everything and it does help improve that confidence and improve that psyche. However, taking the test under really strict conditions, if you're taking practices at home and taking it regularly is really helpful because it, of course it is scary to walk into an official testing center. It might be at, at a school where you're familiar with. It might be at a school where you're not really familiar with around surrounded by students who you don't know. I've heard some absolute horror stories of test proctors that just are not the greatest proctors either. Either they are not, I've heard stories of clocks being broken in the classroom, of it being noisy construction going outside. The one that I think is the most insane is I had a student who told me that the test proctor was talking on her phone the whole time, but kind of knew that it wasn't appropriate talking on the phone. So she was talking in a whisper, which almost makes it worse because then it's like, how do you concentrate? So all those things can happen, which is why what I recommend is when you do take practice tests at home. Don't take them in a perfect, sterile, distraction-free environment because that, then you want to you get used to how what will happen if there are distractions. So what I would say to students is instead of taking them maybe you know in your room and, and telling your parents or siblings, hey, don't bother me at all. Maybe you take it in the kitchen, dining room table. Maybe take it out in, a, in an area and, and your family members should know not to you know, bother you, ask you questions, but if people are walking by or there's conversation going on, so be it. And that, then you practice under those kind of extreme conditions. And this is also where taking the test multiple times helps because of course you can take as many practice tests as you want and you can simulate it as best as you can. I mean, take it on a Saturday morning, take it all in one sitting. So to, to practice the endurance element, take it timed, take it, like I said, in, in a relatively distraction-free, but not completely distraction-free environment, but there actually is no substitute for the real thing, because as much as you try and stimulate test conditions at the back of your mind, you'll always know it's not the real thing. You're not in, in the classroom taking the real SAT or ACT. So it's for that reason, again, why I recommend taking it multiple times and make sure you take it, you know, early on. So don't wait until the end of your junior year to take it for the first time, because just getting, even just getting that first test take under your belt and say, okay, I was a little nervous going in, but turned out, you know, okay, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. Now, now I know what to expect for the next time. Because of that, there's evidence that shows that just taking a test, just taking an official test helps improve your score, even if without additional studying. So of course it's not a substitute for additional studying, but it just, just the practice getting it under your belt is, is really helpful. And what do you think about the SAT going digital? How is that going to affect, you know, what you do teaching students these testing strategies? How might students need to adapt to succeed on a digital SAT, et cetera? Yeah, so probably the biggest change 
with the new digital SAT is it is adaptive. So you'll get two writing and reading sections. They've merged these into a single section, whereas now they're two separate sections. They merge into one section. You'll get two math sections. And depending on your score on the first of the two sections for each subject, your next, your second section might be harder or easier. And so it does change the strategies. This isn't a brand new concept. In fact, grad school exams like the GMAT and GRE have been adaptive. The GMAT is actually adaptive on a question by question level, but this is on a section by section level. So the strategies will change. It, it means that questions are now no longer weighted equally as they are. The style of questions themselves are going to change. So no longer will you get long reading passages. You get little short stems. They'll ask you, there will be more of a focus maybe on vocabulary. They're adding back in a sentence completion, which they used to have the style of question back before the, the 2016 change. So the strategy will definitely change. It will still be predominantly a multiple choice test. So many of those strategies will still kind of exist. But what we'll be doing is they've the college board has already released practice tests and we'll be going through and looking at the entire practice test, kind of analyzing them. And there will always be strategy you can use. It's just, you know, may be different from the ones you use now. So of course we'll, we'll be really familiar on the test and kind of integrate that into a new strategy curriculum. Do you have any recommendations on, you know, maybe like if a student's in high school right now, they should try to get a score while the SAT is still, you know, on paper, they should go ahead and like try to get a score locked in and see how it is before they switch over to the digital SAT. Are there any considerations like that? So if you are currently a senior or a junior, then don't, I wouldn't even worry about the, the digital SAT because it won't affect you. For juniors this year, if you're in the United States, the, the first test won't even be offered until March of your senior year. By then, hopefully all your applications are in and your, your score is set. If you're an international student, it it's starting in March, so you should plan accordingly there. But if you're a freshman or a sophomore, um, then you should plan on taking the digital exam. Sophomores are kind of in this weird transitory year. I, I don't think I would necessarily try and lock in your score, you know, by the fall of your junior year because you're you're worried about the digital digital exam because that limits the amount of times that you're able to take it. And really there, like we talked about before, there's no downside to taking multiple times and it's hugely to your advantage. So if you're a junior, you might just want to, or sorry, if you're a sophomore, you might just want to plan on taking both. So you should still kind of take the paper and pencil test as you would in the fall of 2023. And then once it transitions to the digital version, you'll probably take that version too. And it is you know, a little bit of an annoyance to have to study for two different tests. But at the end of the day, you want to give yourself every advantage to get the best score you can. And I think doing, taking both tests gives you that advantage. Are there sort of like unofficial preparations for the SAT or ACT, like for younger students, you know, are, are there like specific classes that you are like, you know, oh, make sure you take this as a freshman or a sophomore, you'll need that for SAT prep. Yeah. So it's a question. It's a, it's a really good question. I get asked a lot. I've, I've had people call me to work with their sixth grader on SAT and ACT prep. And it's something that I have to tell the parents, maybe let's, let's relax a bit here. Don't feel like you're behind. If you're currently a middle schooler, I know they're in certain schools, they offer Duke offers what they call the Duke tip. Um, it's something that I took and it's offered to seventh graders to take the SAT or ACT. It's really just kind of a, a talent search program for Duke. If you get a high enough score, they'll fly to the university and there's a nice ceremony, but it really has no bearing on 
your college admissions whatsoever. If you take it your freshman year, that will fit. That will be a score. Any test you take in high school counts. But of course, like if you take it your freshman year or your sophomore year, chances are very high that those won't be the scores that you submit. That the score you submit, the highest score you get in each section will, will probably happen later in your high school career because you've had more math classes and because you've had more practice and you've had more time to prepare and you've had more English classes and you've learned more grammar, all that, all those things. So really I tell students to, you know, do the best you can in your classes. Your classes are really important. And if you think about the whole package that you're sending to a college, the, while the SAT and ACTs, all your standards tests are critically important because like we talked about, it's truly probably the only way that you can cross compare students from different school districts. Are there ever times when a student is on like in a very accelerated curriculum and that might actually put them at like a disadvantage if they've taken algebra two, sixth, seventh or eighth grade. And then, you know, now they're taking the SAT as a junior and, you know, there's just like a very large gap between when they learn these concepts that the SAT is testing for versus when they're actually taking the exam. Yeah. So I've, I've heard this before of, Hey, take, take the SAT as soon as you finish algebra two, because everything's fresh in your mind. You know, for me personally, I actually did that. I, I took algebra one and geometry in middle school. I took algebra two, finished it by Christmas in my freshman year. And so I, I took the December SAT my freshman year and it, I, I, I later, I didn't submit the scores. I later got a perfect score. I, I didn't need to submit that math score. It was, it was good, but I just, I kind of fell victim to that mentality. But now that I think about, you know, if, if you're that exceptional of a math student and you're going to go into, you know, sophomore year, junior year, you're taking AP calculus, which um, math is so cumulative. It's, you know, it's going to be built pre-calculus, calculus, multivariable calculus. It's all going to be building on algebra two concepts. It, I think it would be it would be difficult for me to believe that if you're that exceptional math student, you've peaked on your SAT score your junior or your freshman year. I'm sure you know may, maybe even get a perfect score your freshman year, but then you can surely get a perfect score again, you know, your sophomore or junior year. So I don't think there's a huge rush to do it your freshman year as soon as you finish if you're on that advanced track and finish algebra two. Then again, kind of going back to what we said earlier, there's absolutely no downside. So if you have the ambition to do it and say, I want to see what I get, I want to try it. Absolutely. There's, there's no downside and only advantage to taking it. I would, I would happily encourage you to take it, but it wouldn't be necessarily a strong recommendation I make to, to, for people to think that they're behind if they didn't take it They're right after taking algebra two. And finally, I just want to ask if you have any additional words of wisdom to share for students. So if you had like 20 seconds to give them a pep talk before they go take the SAT, ACT, you know, what are your words of wisdom, encouragement? Yeah, I think it just take the pressure off. There's so much pressure on high school students now from, you know, homework and classes and grades. And it's like, everything is so important because colleges are getting more and more competitive. And I, I think it's, you know, it can be sad when you see students who are under so much tremendous pressure that it feels like there's, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And so just to encourage you that, and take kind of take the pressure if you're feeling that kind of take the pressure off not everything that you do has to be resume building or studying have fun kind of relax kind of be a high schooler as much and as long as you can going into these tests if you're someone who's who's feeling the pressure of of an SAT or ACT exam before you go in to the best of your ability and and I kind of I know that this is much easier said than done to the best of your ability try and take that pressure off and say what if I just treat this as completely another practice test? Because unless you're taking it in June of your senior year, 
truly, it is just another practice test because you can always take it again to improve. And even then you could take it, you could take a gap year and, and take it again. So, or even if you're, you know, feel you're, it's your senior year and maybe it's, you know, the December ACT is, is tomorrow. So maybe you're feeling that pressure to the best of your ability to just walk in and say, I'm going to have as crazy as it sounds. I'm going to have as much fun with this test as possible. I'm going to try and read these reading passages and genuinely learn from what I'm reading so much so that I can't wait to tell someone else, like, you know, you're not allowed to talk about the test, but tell someone else what I learned on, on the exam or to have that mentality of like, this is actually fun. I'm, I'm trying, I'm kind of learning and quizzing myself. I'm, I'm impressed at how I'm going. Again, I know that sounds absolutely crazy. I know that's so much easier said than done, but you'd be surprised at how much of a weight that that takes off. And it actually has some really positive benefits in terms of your score too, because the less pressure you're feeling, the less you're second guessing yourself, the more you can kind of, you know, you still want to be meticulous through the test, but kind of take some of that weight off and have fun with it, the, the better your score. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brad. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insight into admissions and SAT and ACT prep. For more information, check out our blog linked in the episode description. If you have any questions or would like to request a topic for a future episode, go ahead and give us a follow and send us a message on social media with the hashtag InsideAdmissions. That's all for now. This is our last episode of 2022. So we hope you have a happy holidays and we'll see you back in January 2023 with an episode on the top summer programs for high school students. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey inside the admissions office.